0: We, as a population in the U.S., were the perfect setup and target for this disease. With our disturbed gut microbiomes, our Western diet, we do diversity plots of the U.S. You know, we we may be here, a a sick person may be here, but if you go to a place that hasn't seen a Western diet on an island in in the Pacific, it's here. I I mean, we, we say normal diversity is the normal U.S. population, it's not even close. That isn't even close to what humans evolved
1: on for millions of years. It's enormously different because of our diet. Welcome to The Better Podcast, where we attempt to rewrite the future of our health. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Farrow, the founder and CEO of Better Health. And with me today is news anchor, television personality, a mom of three and a self-described hypochondriac, Aaron O'Hearn. Aaron, how are you doing up there in Philadelphia this week?
2: I'm great. I have my tiger sweater on. I was going through old emails and I actually found one from you back in 2009. Do you know what the email was?
1: In 2009, a baby was on the way.
2: Yeah. It was, it was an ultrasound of Sienna, my oldest.
1: Oh, can we tell the story of how you found out you were pregnant with Sienna?
2: <laughs> it was the most lovely memory. I was on my way with my husband to go visit Dr. Farrow and Amber. And we had just gotten married a few months before and we were in the airport. And since I knew it would probably be a weekend of good times and heavy drinking, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't putting any potential child in danger. So we were in the airport and I took a pregnancy test and I came out of the bathroom crying. And my husband said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm pregnant. And he goes, geez, I thought somebody said something insulting to you in the bathroom. And then so I sent Amber a text and I said, the first thing we need to do when I get off the plane is stop at Target and take another one. So I bought six when we got there. And um, yeah, and now Sienna is
1: a tween. And was there a bit of, I'm so happy I'm pregnant, Damn, I can't drink this week.
2: Yes, there was. I was like, actually, my husband looked at me. He's like, you couldn't have just waited till Monday. (laughs) So I just ate a lot instead.
1: As my mom said, your Aunt Mary Ellen and I used to have martinis and cigarettes when we were pregnant with you guys. So, (laughs) (laughs) Actually,
2: I think it's fine. It's fine.
1: Okay. Tequila would have been better. Anyway, so that's how I am. Today, I'm, you know, this is like my geekdom moment. Uh, You know, obviously, I always talk about gut health. I won't actually shut up about it. So I'm incredibly excited today. We're talking with Dr. Paul Wishmeyer from Duke about gut health and how it can impact COVID 19. So, obviously, incredibly uh, important topic. Uh, They have a new paper in the Journal of Gut suggests that the composition of the gut microbiome. And the time of infection may impact whether someone will experiencing long COVID or prolonged symptoms. Plus, the American Society of Microbiology says there's a growing body of evidence suggesting that poor gut health adversely affects your COVID-19 prognosis. As a gut health expert, I'm not surprised that there might be a connection here. Aaron, I know you're a, a gut health fanatic yourself. Do you think there's a, a connection here?
2: So it's funny that you said that because I was actually talking to someone this morning and I've had this thought several times that there's a certain amount of people that I know who've either been exposed or have you know not been super conservative with socially distancing and mask wearing and traveling. And even myself, I keep thinking, like, how have I not gotten at this yet? So in my head, I was thinking does it have something to do with just your overall health you know are are some people more immune to it than others and obviously the connection with gut health is relevant to a lot of different illnesses in our life and our mental well-being it fascinates me but it doesn't surprise me and i'm very interested in learning more about it because there has to be some connection if you look at the number of COVID cases that are severe and the health of those patients. I am a true believer that there is likely a connection and I am excited to learn the
1: details about how they're connected. To be fair, generalization is your superpower.
2: Generalizations and talking in the superlative.
1: <laughs> okay. So without further ado, Dr. Paul, how are you, my friend? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to be on the show and, and to talk about something that sounds like we all are very passionate about. And its relationship to COVID-19. Absolutely. And interesting enough, you and uh, Aaron have a similar medical history, but uh, we'd love to kind of hear your road to how you became an expert on this. And, you know, obviously from, a, you have a personal story attached with this. So we'd love to start from the beginning with your own personal history with gut health. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I do. It goes back to when I was a
0: teenager, when I was 15. I actually never been sick a day in my life, you know, was living my life as a, as a high school student. Playing basketball and, and, and living the life you do. And, and then suddenly I was diagnosed over Christmas break with strep throat and got put on antibiotic, erythromycin, and had this GI symptoms that antibiotics like erythromycin cause ultimately started to bleed from IGI tract and, and have pain and never experienced anything like this, never seen me inside of a hospital, much less a test that they do in a hospital, and started having to go to doctor's visits. And, you know, they started doing all the terrible things that when our gut doesn't act right, that doctors do to you, um, putting scopes in places no one should put tubes and scopes and asking you to lay on tables and putting various substances in places they shouldn't go to, to evaluate that and and um, i think that was the first time i realized that Hey, doctors weren't very nice people most of the time and they didn't really notice that there was a patient on the other end of their torture device that maybe they should be more concerned about and it began to dawn on me that maybe i i should go into medicine because maybe somebody should do this differently or better or at least teach people to do that and so shortly thereafter i I remember going back to the doctor for my follow-up appointment, and he told me I was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, and and I didn't know what that was, and and he said, yeah, you're going to have to come into the hospital, and you're not going to eat anything for six weeks, and and we're going to keep you, and I said, the hell I am, I'm I'm playing a basketball game next week, and there's no way I'm not eating for that long, and he said, no, no, that's what's happening. He said, your your blood count, your hemoglobin is like three, and that is life-threatening for you to have a a low blood count like this, and you're coming in, and we're going to Put these IVs in you and, and we're going to start you on IV nutrition and, and you're not going to eat for weeks. And so I spent the next actually three months like that, getting IV nutrition, um, which is where some of my nutrition and, and gut beginnings started. Uh, it, it saved my, my life in many ways. But, you know, I also realized the treatments for these diseases like inflammatory bowel disease and other immune diseases are often worse than diseases themselves. You know, I was on steroids and a lot of these autoimmune uh, drugs that people are that have horrid side effects. I had panic attacks and stretch marks they have to this day. And I mean, and I never got better. I never improved. I never was able to go home from the hospital. Um, and ultimately, my intestine perforated. I got really, really sick and septic. Um, ended up having emergency surgery. And the surgeon came in and shook me. He said, you're going to have surgery tomorrow. You're going to die the next night. And I think they thought I would try to say no. I was 15. And, and I think they thought I'd be a challenging teenager. But I said, look, do it now. Get this over with. Get this out and, and had those surgeries and then spent some time in the ICU. And ultimately, then through my life, I've had 23 more surgeries like that. You know, even in, in IVD, when they take out an ulcer take the colon, if they tell you you're cured, but you're, you're really not because you have these scarring and adhesions that come back and cause you to need further surgeries that no one really tells you about. But, you know, at that point, I think I realized that medicine is the path I want to take. And I I think I want to study the gut because I I want to understand what happened to me and why and figure out ways that maybe are a little more natural, a little more healthy to treat the illness so that the treatment's not worse than the disease itself and perhaps more effective to work with the body. And so my research began actually with the, I was a patient at University of Chicago um, when I was a teenager and they have a really outstanding GI department, research department. And I ended up volunteering the first summer after my college uh, life. And I walked in the gastroenterologist care for me, I said, teach me to do research, I'll volunteer, I'll do whatever it takes to learn to do this. And so I volunteered in a GI health laboratory, a gut health uh, laboratory, worked in the Inflammatory bowel Disease Research Center, a couple of really well-known GI physicians, Steve Hanauer and Eugene Chang, and began to learn about how you kept the gut healthy, what promoted gut health, what nutrients promoted gut health, Um, began to really develop an interest in, in nutrition, and, and ultimately, then, um, as my career went on, the microbiome and, and the role of bacteria and, and the role they played in the gut, because I was studying gut nutrients and bacteria make a lot of our gut nutrients, suddenly became real science. And, and the ability to assess the microbiome and understand the bacterial makeup of our gut and what a role it plays in health became a reality. And so I joined forces um, with, a, with a really phenomenal microbiome expert named Rob Knight. He did the help do the human microbiome gut microbiome project. We did the first assessment in a multi center way of critically ill uh, patients in the ICU, looking at their microbiomes and the incredible changes that occur even within 24 to 48 hours when we become sick. And I think what I learned along the way is, is that, and I think, you both have probably talked about this a lot is that we live in a modern society where we are bombarded by things that disturb the natural evolution of our trillions of friends that live inside of us that keep us healthy and keep us human um, it disturbs them a, a great deal everything we face every day you know people always say what really makes us human uh, we say well you know is it ourselves that make us human well there's we have more trillions more bacterial cells and human cells in our body, and then we always say well, it's are genes that make us human. Well, there's almost 99% of the genetic material in our body is bacterial, and only 1% is human. So, we're actually 99% bacterial. And so, they affect huge arrays of how our lives live. You have probably talked about it before. You know, if you go into the woods and a mosquito bites you, it's not because you're sweeter. It's because the bacteria that live on your skin are different, and that's why you get bit more than your wife, husband, or friend. And, you know, I also began to discover the autoimmune disease I had. Many other people have have probably a lot of tie-in to the sort of bad changes that we induce in our gut by the very unique diets or Western or unhealthy diets that we eat, by the antibiotics we're given as kids. I've talked to many children with inflammatory bowel disease who tell me the same story I experienced. They took an antibiotic as a teenager or as a young person, and suddenly they had GI symptoms, bleeding, and problems that never went away. And so that is a common story. I don't see it written much about in the literature, but it's a common story I hear from kids. I counsel about surgery and about their disease. And and so clearly we know that we have markedly disturbed our gut bacteria from this, the normal everyday things we do in the Western world. You know, autoimmune diseases like this don't exist in in other third world countries. You really don't see it in Africa. You really don't see it in in undeveloped Asia. Uh, But if those people move to the US, they begin to get them. And so as we have crushed down infectious diseases, we have exponentially increased autoimmune diseases like MS, like rheumatoid arthritis, like IBD. And, you know, what we've really done is we've set ourselves up for pandemics like this perfectly. We are, we are the perfect setup for COVID or another virus or another infectious pathogen to attack because our normal defenses that our body uses, which our gut microbiome, really massively affects our immune system and its response and the ability to defend itself against especially respiratory pathogens, but also gut pathogens, is now perfectly disturbed for a pathogen like COVID-19 to come in and and attack us. And, And that may be why, you know, the cases that we're hearing about in the Western world are perhaps even more severe and the death rates we're hearing about in the U.S. are perhaps even worse than either in other parts of the world perhaps. And of course, that data is yet to to totally be understood. But the reality is, my laboratory has been able to show for years, when we give a probiotic, for instance, a, a normal commensal probiotic, a healthy bacteria to an animal before we give it pneumonia with a very pathogenic virus or bacteria, we can reduce mortality by more than half and even eliminate it sometimes just by giving a probiotic to normalize the bacteria in the guts of the animals. And there's huge clinical trials now there's a paper in nature which is the premier journal in the world perhaps that showed that we can reduce um, respiratory infections in 4,000 subjects they studied by 30 to 50 percent and that includes sepsis pneumonias other infections by half and so there isn't a treatment we know of practically that can do that especially one that is safe inexpensive and, and easy to take without with very minimal, if any, side effects. And so, there's actually quite a few studies like this. That's probably the premier study, but there is a wealth of data that exists that says, if we want to defend ourselves against infectious organisms like this, pathogens, pandemic pathogens like this, probiotics and changing how our gut responds to normalize it back to the way it's supposed to work, maybe one of our best avenues. And, and I think that's where Anthony Sung's and my research at Duke has really taken us to the clinical trials we're doing now to prevent COVID spread. And, and I think our gut health really is essential to us defending ourselves against these pathogens. And I think the trial we're doing is a unique opportunity, but I think we hope there's more research like this soon.
1: Before we get into the rest of the questions, I just want you to explain that study. Sure. First of all, phenomenal synopsis. You know, I feel like I want to hug you. You're like my brother from another mother. I do this every Tuesday night. And some of the anecdotes you said are just wonderful and phenomenal and also incredibly enlightening and empowering. People with this knowledge, they can really empower themselves. So please tell us about the study quickly, and then Aaron and I are going to go at you with questions. I'm sure we got a lot to So just talk about the study quick, please. Sure.
0: So th- this study was done There's a researcher who used to be at University of Nebraska, and now he's at Georgetown, who took 4,000 full-term healthy infants in India. He's from India himself. Randomized them to a lactobacillus and prebiotic intervention or a control that was just a placebo, basically. And then he followed them for months to see, did they acquire infections of any sort, respiratory infections, sepsis? Did they die from any of these infections? What happened to them? And what he found was, after following them for months, that there was this massive reduction in infectious etiology and Probably a 40% reduction in respiratory disease, but a reduction in death, sepsis, and overall infections overall. It was nearly 50%, but 30 to 50%, depending on which endpoint you looked at. And it was quite statistically significant. And so it, it was a huge finding. And you know, to get five pages in nature for any trial or any study is a huge complement to the to the real strength of this research and to the real quality of this research that that he did. And so I think this trial is really one of the definitive, probably the definitive probiotic and gut health intervention trials that have been done in the world. There are others. There's meta analyses of thousands of patients looking at multiple studies that are smaller than this that show the same signal. Almost all the meta analyses where they combine different studies, lots of different studies into one analysis to understand the effect of thousands of patients. All of these show about the same effect, 30 to 50% reduction in infections, respiratory infections, when you take a a probiotic. And we've done research uh, and other groups have done research around the U.S. The NIH has funded. Um, One trial in particular looked at patients that were in the ICU, like a COVID-19 patient with the ICU on a ventilator. And the idea in this study was, if you're in the ICU on a ventilator, we want to prevent you getting a bacterial pneumonia. One of the complications that really devastates our COVID-19 patients is they get secondary infections from other bacteria and other infectious agents. And that can really lead to significant complications or even death. This study was funded by the NIH and they gave, again, a lactobacillus GG probiotic to patients before they had any of those infections, just when they got intubated for whatever reason caused them to need the breathing tube. And they followed them for acquiring other infections like bacterial infections. And it reduced infectious risk by 50% in patients in the ICU who just got a simple lactose gd, they smeared a capsule in the mouth, they gave one to the stomach through the feeding tube, they're obviously not eating when they're in, in the breathing tube. And again, 50% reduction, and that was in the intention to treat group, which is the most rigorous analysis, which means whether the subject completed the treatment or not, um, no matter what they counted the patient in the analysis. So it was a very rigorous analysis. And uh Lee Morrow was the author's name and 50% reduction in infection. And so trials like that are being followed up. And that's one of the reasons we chose the lactobacillus GG probiotic we chose for our COVID-19 study is this is one that's been used in NIH trials before. And it seems to have this profound
1: effect. And it's one we trust. It's one we think is manufactured well. Got it. And you're trying to get a thousand patients. And what's the criteria for the patients you're trying to recruit into this study? Sure. So
0: anybody who has had anyone in their family, in their home, doesn't have to be in their family, someone they live with, diagnosed with COVID-19. If there's anyone like that, and unfortunately, we're we're hearing there are lots of people like that right now, they are eligible for the study if they're above age one. So your kids are eligible, anyone in your family is eligible, and we'll enroll everyone in your house. And so anybody who has anyone in their household who's tested positive COVID-19 in the last 72 hours, we want to help try to prevent the spread of this really awful pandemic disease. And I, you know, I didn't mention perhaps, but I'm a ICU physician, critical care physician. I work in a COVID ICU now by training and by practice. I'm trained in anesthesiology, but I only practice critical care and nutrition. And, uh, you know, we're continuing to to see this, the devastation this is wreaking and and, and our ICUs are filling up with these patients around the country. and, and, And it's a part of my everyday care life too, unfortunately. And so we want to prevent that. And we think we have a real chance
1: to do that first of all, we thank you for your service in there. I know it's not easy. I lost my father-in-law in in November, COVID complications. And, you know, the nurses are sitting there holding up iPads so we can talk with them. And, and, you know, they're doing it all day long and they're gracious and the family's upset and they're taking the anxiety from the patient's family. It's like, what very tough position to be in. And um, uh, just, so thank you for that. In terms of uh, qualifying for the study, so the criteria is within 72 hours. So if someone tested positive in your household and, and it happened in the last 72 hours, they, we will give them the link to enroll. They'll enroll. You'll then send them a nose swab test and a microbiome poop test, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we'll pay you to do that. We'll pay the subjects to do that. We, we know it takes a minute to do that. And so how long does it take for them to get that to their home, the kit? So we send it overnight. We, we also
0: send you, we either send the probiotic or the control as well. Um, so we'll, everything is done online. It's, it's a really simple study. Everything's online and we can send online. You get enrolled online and we mail everything to your house, including the, the treatment for 30 days overnight and you get it the next day. And then you take your baseline sample from the stool and a quick nose swab that, that you then send back to us. And we have all the return mailers in there and then you start taking your your treatment for your gut and and your gut health and you take it for a month and then we have you send us one set of samples then about a week later and then one at the end of the study at at the
1: end of that 30-day period amazing awesome okay so aaron you go go ahead okay
2: so i have i have so many questions so i'm going to have to restrain myself a little bit because they're all going to come out jumbled at once so my first question would be my great aunt was diagnosed with COVID 19. She was in the hospital, I would say, for about two and a half weeks. She just got home. She's still very weak and she's almost 80 years old. She's still on oxygen. Yeah. Would it benefit her to start taking probiotics now?
0: It's a great question. You know, we don't know. Although I will tell you, when people get sick, at least the people that are in our ICUs, their microbiome gets incredibly deranged. We published in M-Sphere, a microbiome journal a few years back. In fact, you know, normally our, our gut is made up of many different bacteria, and, and the most common bacteria might make up 20% of our gut. Patients in the ICU after just even a day or two, like a COVID-19 patient, they can end up with one bacterial species, usually a pathogen, making up 95% of their gut within a few days. Wow. So that there's a crash in the normal diversity, right? We always see a, a healthy gut as a diverse gut. It has lots of different bacteria doing their different important jobs. That is entirely lost in almost all of our sick subjects, which leads to a breakdown in all kinds of things, how you digest food, how you process the, the nutrients you're getting, how your immune system functions and fights off other infections and helps you recover. And so there's a whole wealth of things that we believe, of course, the gut does that's good for us. Virtually... From what our data shows so far, and we're learning more every day, but all of those diverse bacterial families go away when we get sick and get antibiotics perhaps as well um, in the hospital. And so, you know, based on that concept, we do think that taking a probiotic, a commensal that allows the normal bacteria to return is helpful. And to actually tangent on that a little bit, a lot of times we get the question, well, why would taking one species of probiotic help versus taking a whole bunch because we normally would have a whole uh, different spread of different species in our gut. Well, one of the things we found about these bad bacteria that what happens when we, we get sick is the bad bacteria sense our stress. One of the people that I worked with at the University of Chicago was named John and He discovered um, shortly after, actually while I was there, think of quorum sensing, which basically means bacteria talk to each other. And you have Mm -hmm. pathogens like pseudomonas and other nasties that live in your gut all the time. All of us have them sitting here today. You have them, I have them. They just sit quietly and wait for the body to be stressed. It's a little bit, and and this is the analogy we like to use, it's a little bit like looters in a place like New Orleans when a hurricane comes, right? Nobody's looting when everyone's around on the streets and the hurricanes aren't there. But as soon as the hurricane comes and people evacuate the city, the bad actors come and they bring their bad friends and they begin to loot and they tell all their other friends to come and loot and break things and steal things. And they don't go away until the normal population comes back the people that live there to start with. Your gut is the same way. You know, when, when your gut senses stress, those bad actors, sense that stress, tell each other and tell each other to attack and assault the body. And they push out the good bacteria or the disease pushes out the good bacteria or the antibiotics push out the good bacteria and it allows things. And even C. diff, C. diff is a pathetic, weak, little bacteria that is becoming one of the biggest iatrogenic challenges and causes of death and causes of illness in the hospital in the world. When I was a resident, which wasn't that long ago, nobody had C. diff. I saw it once a year. Now I see it once a week Wow. and it devastates people.
2: Yeah. I, that surprises me actually, because I thought it was more rare than that. I yeah. mean, I, have heard about it, but. It used to
0: be.
1: Yeah, it's the fastest growing atrogenic disease most people think in the, in the country. So doc, just so you know that now that you told Erin that she has uh, this lurking dark actor in her gut, it it's now lurking in her brain. I, will be, I will now, this is, this is my, remember I'm the quack, she's the hypochondriac. I will now be getting nonstop texts for what, 48 to seven. I don't,
2: I have to tell you something you're wrong what? and I'll place money on it. And I will tell you is because when I've been listening to this, I've realized that. So doctor, I mean, I have a, a similar story, not as severe mm-hmm. as yours. And now I'm sort of making connections with something that you said about strep throat. But now that it was explained to me in such an articulate way, yeah. giving great examples, I realize that I feel extremely confident with my gut health. And I do not have C. diff. I probably would not get super sick with COVID. And knock on wood, I have not been sick the last. Good. I mean, with anything. Yeah. Even really a cold, the last two years, which I have seen significant changes in my sugar intake and diet. And I'm really, I'm a big believer in probiotics and I make sure I take one every morning, Mm. but so no, Dr. Farrow, I am not going to call you. I will not be worried. I actually feel, I just want to tell everyone about this. (laughs) I want to say, just go get a probiotic and start eating healthy. But I do have another question before Billy interrupts and says that I'm going to bother him for the next few weeks. (laughs) When you're talking about when we're talking about COVID in relation to gut health. Yeah. Do you think? Because I know at the beginning of the podcast I, I said that I have this hunch that some people aren't not only just aren't getting severely sick, but aren't even contracting it. Is there any evidence in your studies or or suggestions that people who their gut health is functioning well and there are, might I always forget how it it's the microbiome. Yeah. Right. So. It's a, if that's healthy then and balanced, is there evidence that you just don't even contract it, that you may be exposed to it, but your body fights it off or the virus just can't live inside you?
0: So I think that's one of the study endpoints our study is trying to get at. So that, you know, the baseline microbiome sample that we collect in our study will allow us to look at then and follow these high risk subjects, family members of people who have it or who are at high risk to get it. And say, so Look,
2: obesity is on the top of that yeah. list.
0: And obesity disturbs the microbiome. All the comorbidities, all the comorbidities that put you at high risk for COVID are all linked to highly disturbed gut microbiomes too, right? So there's probably inherent things, obviously, about diabetes compared to immune system. Being obese, um, you know, being obese is a very interesting thing. And I, I, I'm definitely not, I'm going to caveat what I'm going to say, but I'm not promoting anyone be obese. But, you know, I teach the residents this, the best BMI to be to survive cancer heart failure, trauma, surgery, any illness is what? Do you guys know what the best BMI to survive any insult is? Mine. 32. (laughs) 32. 32, 31, depends on what study you read. Really? It's an obese BMI, right? Who survived the tiger attack in the caveman era? The big caveman, not the little caveman. Because when our body's stressed, it turns to its metabolic reserve, and that's our muscle mass and some of our fat mass, but more our muscle mass. And so- It probably isn't so much BMI, and we're doing a lot of research at Duke. is one of my areas of interest, too, is what role does one's inherent muscle mass play in your resistance to different acute and chronic illnesses? But nonetheless, the pieces of obesity that lead to risk are, are interesting to try to tease out because there's protective factors about being obese, too, from acute lung injury, being on a ventilator, being in the ICU. You'll have more complications, but you're more likely to live up to about a BMI of 40. That said, being obese disturbs your microbiome pretty significantly in almost every case. In fact, we've been able to connect in some studies, microbiome changes from antibiotics as a kid or even being born by C-section, right? To to get to an even more disturbing thought. So kids that are born by C-section don't take on the normal microbiomes in their stool for two years. They look like mom's skin, where they're supposed to look like mom's vaginal secretions. So, for instance, Rob Knight, who's this researcher I do research with, who microbiome samples his kids every day, by the way. Um, he does crazy stuff like that. When his baby was born by C-section, he kicked everybody out of the delivery room, and he smeared his wife's vaginal secretions all over the baby. And, and I think anyone out there who's about to have a section do the same thing. It's probably the only thing you'll remember from the whole podcast. But we evolve as humans differently if we're born by c-section or by vaginal delivery, and our microbiome is dramatically different for the first years of our life which is where we develop immune tolerance some of the things that lead us to be obese or not obese autoimmune disease is different in that setting and then let's add on the exposure to antibiotics so that increases risk of obesity we think too when kids get those as a child so the changes that happen in our microbiome early in life actually promote obesity later. In fact, you can take mice, you can take the stool from an obese rat or mouse, mouse in most cases, put it into a mouse that's never had any bacteria in it before, and the mouse gets obese. Hmm. They're doing twin to twin studies where they take the stool from, they take twins, one's thin, one's obese, they take the stool from the thin twin and they transplant it into the obese twin and the obese twin will lose weight.
2: So let me just clarify something, because I have a couple questions about what you said with, with that correlation. But as far as obesity being helpful or there are people who are of a certain BMI or higher mm-hmm. and there's a threshold, surviving COVID, but it...
0: Right. But getting COVID, the risk the risk is much higher. And I don't want anyone to go away with this idea, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm protecting it's COVID if I'm right. not.
2: You don't want to get to that point, yeah.
0: Let's say our data that I've seen, and I can tell you our ICU populations too. Obesity is a huge risk factor, sure. And so, one of the thoughts we've had—it's a hypothesis, of course—but that part of the reason obesity is such a huge risk factor is obese people have disturbed gut microbiomes that make right. them more susceptible, right? Bottom line, and 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 we would love to believe that we could try to protect or correct against that by using probiotics and and improving the diets of these individuals, right? I mean. It, it is definitely a risk factor, and in fact, in, we're doing a study right now to define the metabolic phenotype of the COVID patient in the ICU, so we're doing metabolic carts and muscle measurements and all these other sort of nutritional metabolic measurements, and more than 50% of the patients I'm studying are obese with BMI over 31, so more than half the patients of all the patients that come into the ICU um, with COVID are, are obese. Their average BMI in our studies is 31, 32, which is exceptionally high, right? I mean, That would not be the average BMI necessarily of the whole population.
2: Well, and with, in in regards to COVID, that presents this presents another interesting connection, which which you're making for the first time, at least that I've I haven't read this in the major newspapers or publications. But the, the demographics, the the people who are getting more severe cases of COVID or just COVID in general, tend to be not only people who are obese, but minorities and poorer populations, uh, which don't have access to healthy food. They have higher rates of smokers. Definitely. Alcohol abuse and but the food I think is so essential because you're talking about people who live in food deserts and and rely on their convenience stores for breakfast lunch
0: and dinner, which is devastating to the microbiome. Yeah, I, I 100%. I agree on all of those facts. You know, I always say to my kids, I have three boys, and I say, you know, if this was a disease of middle aged upper class white men, we'd have 100,000 deaths in the U.S. Not 400,000 deaths in the U.S. But it isn't. It's a disease of underserved, underrepresented minority populations who don't have financial, socioeconomic status that others that make many decisions have. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's tragic. And I think a lot of it does come back to the exact things you're saying. You know, these are the people that are at challenged in their diets, challenged in, a, they have a lot of the comorbidities, you know, diabetes and obesity and a lot of these things are, are, are much higher rates oftentimes in these populations and so it's sad. It's a setup for this disease to really devastate these populations, and and that's why, you know, things like probiotics and diet interventions that are safe, inexpensive, accessible to anyone—they're not multi-million-dollar drugs that not everyone can get. Perhaps there's things that we could be given to anyone in the U.S. and anyone in the world. Really, we can we can afford to use these in third-world countries. They're they're so inexpensive, are really appealing. We think and work with the body mm-hmm. to try to to really. Address this illness and other illnesses. You know, we fear this. This won't be the last chase down we have with this pandemic as it mutates and changes, or perhaps others. And and again, you know, yeah. I think we all realize we need to be better at being ready. And I, again, I, I can't say it enough. We as a population in the U.S. were the perfect setup and target for this disease with our disturbed gut microbiomes, our Western diet. We do diversity plots of the U.S. You, you know, we we may be here. A, a sick person may be here. But if you go to a place that hasn't seen a Western diet on an island in, in the Pacific, it's here. I, I mean, we, we say normal diversity is the normal U.S. population. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. That isn't even close to what humans evolved on for millions of years. It's enormously different
1: because of our diet.
2: Can I digress from the COVID conversation? Or Dr. Fair, do you want to jump jump in
1: for a second? I was hoping to be part of the podcast, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I could just go downstairs and make some, some uh, probiotic uh, kombucha right now. So so doc, it's super fascinating, and obviously, for me, this is like a really great moment because I've been called a quacks. I've been preaching this since two thousand and three talking about c-sections. My own son was a c-section and immediately had food sensitivities and allergies. And at the time, you know, I as much as I was trying to put it together, I, I was like, well, maybe he just has these food allergies and And of course, skin was erupting all the time and tons of issues on his face. And I was looking at my wife's diet because she was breastfeeding. And I said, what are you eating that's doing this? She goes, it's not what I'm eating. I said, Amber, I know that it is. And we went through all this testing. And eventually she worked the morning show at the time she was getting up and having rice cakes with peanut butter on top of it every day. And it was through the system. And my son was having all these issues. We cut it out within days, it was gone. And I see that I see that his immune response is, is weaker than my other son. And had I known at the time, because both of my sons were C-section, it does make sense to do the slathering to give them because the gut is neutral when it's when you're born, and it only comes from the from the mom. To your point, now I've helped over 30,000 people do this. So we Give them the coach. We highly focus on the food and the prebiotics and the good high, high fiber foods because we want it to last. And oftentimes we said, yeah, we have a, when I first started this, I would just send people out to buy a probiotic, but then I realized not all probiotics are made equal. So I experimented over time. We finally came up with our own probiotic blend with enzymes, but I always tell people on the phone, the probiotic alone without the food is sometimes like sprinkling seeds on a desert, right? You just can't then have the, the makeup to do so. If it comes between you being able to afford healthy food and afford this the supplement, you go buy the healthy probiotic and prebiotic type type food. And with that, we've had uh, patients coming to us. And, and what's great about the, we're covered by 40 different health plans. These health plans are realizing this food is medicine approach with this gut healthy approach is saving them. Paul Markovich of the CEO of Blue Shield of California said that, We're reversing type 2 diabetes in his population and on average saving him 150 per participant per month. Mm. And so they've gotten so excited to to Aaron's point about, well, we have folks that maybe can't afford the food. Uh, So what we've done is we've created a food, nationwide food delivery service that Blue Shield of California is now piloting with that they're actually giving $750 voucher towards the healthy food for a three-month period to help those folks overcome it. So what we hope to prove is, Food is medicine with the combination of the gut healthy science and the food is medicine part, you will be less likely to contract COVID. If you do get it, you'll reduce the s- severity of the symptoms as well as while you're going through this preventative nature, you'll drop five to seven percent of your body weight, which will reduce your risk for all the other comorbidities that pre- you know predispose you to begin with. Um, so everything you're saying is like incredibly validating. I can't wait for our members to hear, particularly because you back the studies. When I was doing this, I was so enamored with the results we were getting that I, I left academia behind. I was just like, no, just just keep doing it, keep doing it. And and thanks to your work and your colleagues and everything you've done in the last two decades, really has shown such a positive light, you know, on this. And the last thing I'll say about the the probiotic part of it is do you, you know, we don't I don't see a lot of studies in this, but do you think that? The natural substances like kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi will have a better deliverability than maybe, let's say, the, the supplement. Like obviously, and it's, I always say supplements are great because that's an insurance policy you're getting it, but what, what would you surmise as far as you know food versus the supplement form? Great question. I'm gonna I'm gonna address two points because I think you said something really important when you were
0: talking about the the dietary things that that you really revolutionized, it sounds like, how insurers and patients are, are seeing their world. You know, I've been blown away at the data for IBD. When you start to do diet changes and diet manipulations and clean up IBD patients' diets, even taking kids all the way back to elemental sort of um, nutrition supplement diets and then adding on foods has done really impressive things to cure and create remission in, in patients with, without immune diseases. And, and like you said, I think it's done wonders for people with diabetes. It's funny. Like you kind of talked about in your history, when I was a, a medical student, the gym there didn't have air conditioning. It was really hot in Chicago. And so I became a personal trainer at a professional bodybuilding gym to make money so I could work out in a gym that had air conditioning because I was broke. And, um, you know, learned enormous amounts about what the in, integral role of diet was on people functioning at the highest level. And, and I watched a lot of them. Some of them were bodybuilding athletes. Some of them were, were sprinting athletes. Some of them were running athletes. And a lot of them ate gluten-free and they'd eliminated gluten from their diet altogether. This is just one example. And then the Olympic Center, Training Center in Colorado, came out with data that showed that when they randomized Olympic athletes to a gluten-free diet versus the ones that didn't, they improved their performance 7% in the events. Now, 7% doesn't sound like much, but 7% at that level is the difference between meddling and not even qualifying. Right. Right. And so I've been blown away by the data in illness and in healthy folks of what Cleaning up your diet, even taking out the—that's what I tell a lot of my patients. That, you know, they say, "How do I eat better?" How it's so complicated. It's too much. I think plans like yours, Bill, are phenomenal because I think that's what people need because this is not easy to do. But one of the things I say to them is right off the bat: if you cut gluten out, you're going to cut out all the simple sugars. You're going to—I mean—you're going to eliminate all the things that really devastate us and cause the glycemic index problems that lead to the diabetes and other things. I said, try that one thing, and almost every one of them loses at least ten percent of their body weight in the first three months, and they all feel better. And they all exercise more, they tell me, because they feel better. But I think it's true. I think there's simple changes you can make
1: that change your very life in so many ways. And one way to position it to people, because one thing that we've been able to do is is understand where the person is mentally, right? So it's really important to understand how they're when they're presenting to you for the first time. It's, yes, I have this problem. I want to fix it. You know, Erin actually is someone uh, who's able to reverse her uh, IBD issues. She had this pain, this issue. She was Desperate for to change. So, you know, we were friends. She went through the program. Great. But then you have the others that maybe there's not that pain pressure point right now. Yes, they're overweight. The doctor's telling them this. And they may not be in the right motivated state. And also they've been in the motivated state before. They've tried every diet under the sun. They've tried the punishment routine of flipping tires and parking lots and shakes and counting calories and all that stuff. And it's always led them down the same path. They start off great and they always fall off. Mm -hmm. And our society has pounded into their head that there's something wrong with their psychology. So what we need is a bunch of Tony Robbins running around, psyching them into doing this. Really, the psych comes from the gut. I would tell them, I said, you know, the studies show within 24 hours, and you just said this the opposite way. If in 24 hours of COVID, your gut gets demolished, yep. in 24 hours of feeding it right, it gets boosted. So I say, if you can just take three days, I said, just take three days. Wake up in the morning and weigh. take pictures of your lunch and dinner, mark your food, your your sleep, your energy, and your mood, and drink 60 to 80 ounces of water, cut out the gluten, cut out any processed sugars, eat your apple, eat your oranges, eat your strawberry, blueberry. I know diabetes, we always say, don't do that. Please eat those fibrous foods, some lean proteins. You give it three days and it will get easier because now your microbiome is working. The inflammation will go down. You'll control that impulse of all of that stress because the poor microbiome and the emotional stress is putting you in fight or flight mode, which now your adrenal glands are firing all the time. So that reptilian brain kicks in. Now it has a physiological demand for sugar and salt and mm-hmm. you can't control those cravings. So, the part of this, my uh, soapbox here is not is to say, let people know, hey, this is actually much easier than you think it is, because in the past, you were swimming upstream. You were using a chaotic strategy in an old paradigm of punishment. You mm-hmm. used a new paradigm of nourishment, and it should get easier every day so you won't fall off of it. And after 30 days, what we've noticed, we first focus on resetting the microbiome. Then we bring back in foods one by one, so we combine an elimination reintroduction approach so they can figure out, hey, you know, I can actually tolerate some gluten or tolerate a little dairy or I thought broccoli was great for me. The question I would have for you is when people are, you know, doing this elimination reintroduction process, and I, I talk about how stress and the kind of the running the internal marathon causes cravings, is there evidence to show that a microbiome that is depressed Also causes cravings from the metabolites that it's creating or the proteins that it's creating. Is there some evidence that it also?
0: Yeah, and and I think the science goes back to the studies I mentioned before, where if you transfer the stool or the microbiome from an obese animal or an obese human, actually you can do it with obese human stool as well, and put that into a animal that's never seen bacteria. If you take the stool from an obese human, put those into that animal that's never seen bacteria, it is triggered to eat more, and so. Literally within 24 hours or a few, a few, a few days of that transfer, it changes the very fundamental makeup and craving and eating and metabolism of that animal. They eat more. And when you transfer a thin microbiome to the animals, they eat less. And so the gut changes how the brain craves for sure. Um, and we can prove that scientifically. And I think that's a really compelling piece that what you're saying is true. You know, my wife in her earlier life was also a personal trainer for quite a while. And we both say abs are made in the kitchen. They aren't made in the gym. Right. Diet is 70% of it. Exercise is good for you because exercise protects against um, early death and it protects against cancer and it makes tumor shrink and it does all these beneficial things for you. But 75% of weight loss and, and really health is, is in the kitchen. So that is where it's gotta start. I mean, you can work at all you want. You'll never have abs if you don't change your diet. And, 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 the, and the same is true in general, you work work all you want, honestly, and then I'm a huge amount of exercise. But if you don't eat right, it, you're kind of diminished enormously any potential you'd ever get from exercise.
1: Well, exercise is the reward. I tell people when you start to actually get your body back in balance, your microbiome's working, your cravings go away, your sleep is improved. That's where you're converting most of your fats or energy while you're sleeping, you're breathing it out, you're urinating, you're perspiring it, but then you get this energy and you're like, what am I going to do with this? Well, that's the reward. There's those people in, in life like Aaron that you and, and yourself, Doc, that you have to drag out of the gym and then yeah. those you have to drag into the gym. Those that you have to drag out of the gym are expressing this health and energy. So it's like, I, I can't not do this. And that's what we hope to get everybody to and say, don't focus so much on the exercise initially. Let's focus on the nutrition. And then when we start liberating energy, you're going to want to, I never have to tell my kids to run down the street. They have so much energy, they have to get it out. We're going to do the same thing. Get your metabolism back to that kind of kid life uh, experience. So Aaron, jump in here with any questions.
2: So obviously you got into the medical field, Dr. Farrow's in the medical field, but I understand how we talk to people about rethinking their health and rethinking what healthy means and what treatment means, but how do you get the medical community, which is so focused on doing post-treating after the problem develops? Because like, like Dr. Farrow said, you know, our bodies know how to do this. There's a reason why the body functions the way it does. There's a reason why women, when they give birth, they pass on those secretions to the baby. So the baby has is healthy. How how do you sort of restructure the medical system? So it's like, we're not, we're not looking for cures. We're looking for how to educate people on how to regain what their body is supposed to do or or, or repurpose their body to a state where it functions, how it's supposed to, because it's not that people are necessarily getting sick. It's just that their bodies have stopped functioning Due to environmental circumstances, diet circumstances, whatever. That was a long-winded question, but I really, I'm interested in and in how you do that.
0: I mean, I think you know we have found there's probably two answers, and the second one's probably, unfortunately, more effective than the first, as much as we would like it not to be true. The first is science, right? You do the you do the clinical trials to show that um, changes in diet, changes in in gut health and probiotics and other things change outcomes for these patients over time. Now, for that to meaningfully move the needle, that you know, the Institute of Medicine has shown us it takes about 17 years for a major clinical trial to actually show up in a textbook and change practice. So that is a unfortunately a slow process. Sometimes it goes faster, um, but not very often. The second way, and I think though, the way I really like that you're doing it is that probably is far more effective in the modern environment is you get insurers to pay for it and you get insurers to mandate it to say, A, if you have obesity, or if you have diabetes, or if you have IVD, you know, we are going to pay for and recommend this course of action, like having a, a diet plan since food in your home, and covers probiotics, perhaps, or covers physicians that know how to prescribe that kind of thing. The second, even more effective piece at the hospital level is, if hospitals and health systems don't participate in programs that provide better food, and and better interventions at this base level that are so fundamental to our health as humans, yet then they don't get paid for the care they render and and they lose reimbursement. Um, That's the most motivating way to change practice is if you as a practice, you as a hospital, you as a health system, don't do these fundamental
1: things, we're going to find another hospital to care for our patients or we're not going to reimburse you. You're 100% right, Aaron. When I was going to the health plans to begin with, they rolled their eyes like, you want us to cover what? Where's your clinical data, right. where's the clinical studies? So I, I said, let me reframe this. I'll take them on at risk and then you pay me when they hit outcomes. And you know the population health group and then the chief medical officer was like, I still need to see outcomes. And the CFO said, you, for once, you be quiet. This guy's willing to put his money where his mouth is. And if he gets those outcomes, our data scientists you know our actuaries algorithm said that you're gonna save us 1800 to two thousand dollars in the first three months if you get their A1c down just one percentage point. so they're like go and that's what's really pushing innovation is cost savings is being able to say these are outcomes based right. And actually risk contracting too, Aaron. So Medicare has now come out and giving people large swaths of population saying, here, these, you take care of these 60,000 folks. We'll pay you what we were going to pay to take care of them for the year. And anything you save is yours. So there's yes. some uh, innovations that are speeding up. And now that the data particularly supports what like Doc is bringing to the table with this health gut health first approach. I think you're going to see, and unfortunately, the pandemic has also had a positive outcome in the way that it is letting us look at this and say, hey, we've been, like you said, Doc, we were already predisposed to this. We didn't know that this was the biggest threat to our national security is our poor health. And we were primed for this. Let's stop the red tape and let's look for things that can make a median impact. And gut health is literally one of those things that within 30 days, 28 days, this person is markedly more healthy than they were. 28 days prior. Uh, so it's super exciting. I am officially inviting you, I've been meaning to do this for forever, is to create a scientific advisory board. I am would love for you to be the first person on that board. And I'm putting you on the spot, but man, you're just a gee,
2: now you have no choice. <laughs> yeah, no.
1: But this is the reason I went into medicine. I mean,
0: it, this idea that there are ways that we can treat people. That aren't these drugs that a cost a lot, but b are often worse the disease and create risks, and and honestly aren't always that effective. And you know this is why I went into medicine. That and and that is hopefully try to teach young doctors to take better care of patients. I think those two things are the essential drivers of of the reason I chose this
1: this path in my life. What makes me super excited about your study as well is that so Aaron, we're going to try to recruit some of our members to actually you know anyone that comes up and hits the criteria. I can't wait to see those that are on in the study that are also following our food plan that some of them will be taking a probiotic and some will be taking the placebo this is double blind trial so i can't wait to see the difference in those that have are eating the food and have the probiotic those are eating the food and have just the placebo and then Mm -hmm. that subgroup versus the rest of the population that's not working with better health just for my own edification, because I always want to bring the best to the to the end user. And, and I'm always like, less is more. Like, let's just get to, let's not complicate this. There's some of my colleagues have created programs where they test the microbiome, they give you this super lengthy, you know, thing of all the foods you can eat or can't eat. People always ask me, well, why aren't you just sending them right away for blood testing? It's like, because I want to just get at what I know is going to be the end result, right? And why spend all that extra money? But in this case, this will give us some of that data that I've been longing for to, to prove or disprove, you know, I surmise. But if, if I'm wrong, if some of those foods are unnecessary, then I can shift the dollar to some other food that they could eat. So I'm super excited about this. Aaron. I'm going to let you um, finish, finish this off here because Doc's got to go back to saving lives. <laughs>
2: No, I would just say thank you so much for all your information and and really of having being interested in the medical field, not only because you're interested in the science aspects of it, but just the patient care part of it, and having an empathy for people who've had similar experiences to your own. I think it's it's an amazing story, it's an inspiring story. and I wish i I really hope that we hear more from you, and it becomes becomes front page news. Instead of how many people are, are being affected by COVID, because I know it's been difficult for you and all your colleagues to deal
1: with this pandemic for the
2: last year. So just thank you. That's how I'm going to end it.
1: Awesome. So listening to your uh, story, we will put links for people to, to see if they can get approved for the study. It's super easy, right? It's great. They can do it from anywhere. Their whole family can do it. So we'll have links within the podcast. And I just want to echo what Aaron has just said. Doc, you're the most genuine, you know, warm individual, super intelligent. What you've done today, I think that the education you've given some people today that listen to this is really going to change lives and, and hundred, hopefully hundreds and thousands of those lives. So we appreciate you and thank you so much for joining us, my friend. I don't really wanna go into anything else, but just sign off and say that was amazing and awesome. If you're struggling with your gut health and want to try the better health method, just go to betrhealth.com. We are mission driven. So if you start working with us and for some reason it just doesn't work out or it's not right for you, you know that we just give you a high five and send you on your way. Thanks for listening everyone to the better podcast brought to you by betterhealth.com for episodes, be sure to subscribe to this feed on the podcast app you're using right now. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Bill Farrow, and we'll see you again on The Better Podcast. Hey there, listeners. Did you know we not only have an award-winning podcast, but we have an amazing blog to go with it? If you go over to BETRHealth.com and click on the blog button, you'll have access to recipes, member stories, food is medicine tips, and so much more. That's BETRHealth.com slash blog.